Welcome to Endless, the Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, story expert, and disembodied presence who haunts the attic room, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and stuffed spider collector, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sandman, issue 11, Moving In, which is the second issue in the Doll's House storyline. Moving In was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. Xylenol did the colors, Todd Costanza lettered, and Karen Berger edited, assisted by Art Young. Covers by Dave McKean. Each human is connected to the dreaming. They spend a third of their lives in this realm. To break the connection would take power and knowledge. Time to wake up. All right, Elisa, so here we are, issue 11. Um, We're getting into the Doll's House volume. Um, What is your overall response to this issue? This is another issue which really moves between dark and light, between realism and fantasy, uh, between, you know, something that feels cynical and dark and something that's bright and, and innocent. I can actually see a through line between Jed's primary colored escapist dreams and a modern animated show like Adventure Time. You know, Adventure Time touches on a darker reality of some apocalypse that happens, and then mm-hmm. it, it springs into this surreal, playful alternate universe. Yeah, no, it's definitely kind of, it's it's really got that, um, you know, the kid sidekick superhero kind of flavor to it. And because, you know, that has been in DC's history, you know, to bring it from that space and to pull that into here and mix it with such incredible darkness is like a really interesting choice. Um, this wasn't my favorite issue of Sandman so far. I mean, I love the dream part of it. Um, Rose doesn't work that well for me as a protagonist. Um, Jed's comic book dreams, again, kind of cool um, until you get to the nightmare that is that basement. And I mean, here is the thing with me. Like, um, my boyfriend and I have this discussion all the time where he recommends movies and he wants me to see things. And I'm like, are there going to be kids getting hurt? Because if there are kids getting hurt, then no. And so he's like, no, we'll watch it. It's not that bad. Right. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, but anybody who has is laughing now. So anyway, um, so when we go into this and I'm seeing this kid in this basement suffering, like it's really, really difficult for me. So that makes it a difficult um, issue for me to read. Um, also, you know, here's the thing, like eyeballs for dinner. I mean, come on. They're really more of a breakfast snack, maybe brunch on a Sunday, but still like just completely <laughs> gauche. So anyway, <laughs> but let's go ahead and move right into the summary. In Moving In, Rose arrives at a house in Florida and is met by her new landlord, Hal, and her new housemates, two ladies who collect spiders and a creepy couple, Barbie and Ken, who give Hal a hard time about his drag persona, Dolly. The last tenant, Gilbert, isn't around at the moment. She tells Hal she's in town looking for her brother, Jed, who would be about 12 now. We cut to Jed in the land of marvelous dreams, where he's a kid sidekick to Lita and Hector, superheroes also known as Fury and the Sandman. When Jed wakes up, however, he's being held captive in a basement where he sleeps and urinates on the floor. Back at the house, Rose writes home to report on her progress and notices a raven hanging around her window. The raven flies away and returns to Dream, who calls him Matthew. 
Matthew the Raven reports that Rose is definitely the Vortex, and she's looking for her brother. Dream wants a picture of the boy so he can find him. Matthew steals a picture from Rose's desk. Something weird is going on, and he wonders which one of his escaped Dreamland entities is responsible. Later that night, Rose is walking home from Dolly's show when she's attacked by some men in an alley. A man in a cloak and hat fights them off with a cane and introduces himself as Gilbert, her other housemate. Meanwhile, in a hotel in Birmingham, Alabama, the Corinthian eats human eyeballs while making plans to go to a conference in Georgia for people like him. Although really, there aren't any people like the Corinthian, are there? He says goodbye to his eyeless victims and leaves the motel. Rose gets a call about Jed's location and heads out. Gilbert insists on coming along to be her protector, and they head off to find Jed at a small farm in Georgia. Dream finds Jed and discovers that Brute and Glob have separated Jed from the Dreaming, and while Jed sleeps, they hide out in his mind. Dream is not having any of this, and he heads out after them. To be continued. All right, Elisa. So here we are with moving in. What are your thoughts? What do you got? Well, you know, I, I want to start by talking a little bit about the cover because the cover mm-hmm. is always such a great source for symbols and motifs yeah. in the story. So this is a really beautiful cover by Dave Fikine. Mm-hmm. It shows uh, Morpheus a kind of bending over, shirtless, sensual, and kissing what appears to me to be a woman's hand, while mm-hmm. there are fish hooks of desire, despair, that are, are sort of uh, sunk into him, making him a little yeah. bit look like a puppet. We mm-hmm. also have a scissors and yep. a butterfly. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by this because as I was looking at it, I got the book. I'm so excited now. I have the book with all of Dave McKean's covers so that I can look at them and kind of get a feel for them. The Dust and Covers was, book. Yeah, yeah, The Dust Covers yeah. book. Um, so, uh, so I thought it was really interesting, but I was trying to connect it with this issue. And I'm like, oh, this must be symbolic or something. <laughs> it must be just like <laughs> symbols as opposed to like textually representing what is actually in um, in the story itself. And I, you know, I had trouble kind of making the connection between um, between what the symbols are. Like, what is the butterfly? We have ravens. We don't have butterflies in the actual story. I don't know what the scissors represent. Um, you know, like, do, so do you have a sense of what the what that symbology is? Or is that like kind of hinting at things to come? I am perplexed as well. I don't have an instant answer. The mm-hmm. butterfly, I believe, is often associated with delirium. And we haven't met her yet, so we don't know this. It is the one spot of bright color in this cover. If I'm mm. right, and that butterfly has something to do with delirium, well, Jed is in a state of delirium. He's escaping mm-hmm. into dreams. And these yeah. are these are dreams that are also severed from the dreaming. So he mm-hmm. is really in a state where he is not together mm-hmm. with the rest of reality or even the rest of the regular dream world. Um, so I think that that might have something to do with that. The scissors, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a literal moment in there, but you know, scissors to me, I'm going into a sort of gut dream place and they, they, yeah. um, 
I think about the fears of, you know, when, when in, in old nursery tales, scissors often are, you know, cutting off. Oh God, this is so <laughs> gross to, to say, but you know, the, the one about the, what is the one about the mice and the, um, they all run after the mar- farmer's wife. I don't know. It's oh, the, right. I cut the tails with a, oh, but that was a knife. knife. Yeah. But somehow, Have you ever seen such a sight in your life? So yeah. For some mm-hmm. reason, I'm in a nursery rhyme castration fear dream with those scissors. It's no, it's interesting. I mean, you know, when I thought about it, I was like, well, maybe the scissors because Brute and Glob have have found a place to hide. And they are separated. They have cut off Jed from the rest of the dreaming. They, mm. They're hiding out in his mind that there's some kind of cutting there. Um, although I think that's probably a, a stretch. It's really interesting, though. And I kind of like I, I love that there's sort of a puzzle to do, you know, every week with with Dave McKean's covers. And they are so like visually stunning. If you guys get a chance to grab that book um, or, you know, look them up on the Internet or whatever, they are if you don't if you don't have them. I in my Kindle version doesn't have them. Um, and uh, and it, they're just they're beautiful. They're they the cross medium. They have different kind of mediums involved. It looks a little collage-y. Um, Very, very cool. Very interesting. And now I'm just kind of like fascinated about trying to read the covers like you would read tea leaves. You know, it's just really, really interesting. Interesting. So I love that. Um, what else do you have about the art? Um, yeah, by the way, I was just going to say that I think that because this is a comic which has very different levels, often Dave McKean's art, instead of calling out literally what's going on in the issue with the way an old timey comic book cover was, it is calling out some of the subtler nuances. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, the art in, in all of these issues is great. Mm-hmm. I, this is a one area where I have a small quibble. Um, mm-hmm. I found the layout on page two confusing. It's a we see a shot of uh, we're looking down a staircase at Rose mm-hmm. and Hal, and the next shot we see a close up, and it becomes a series of close ups of Barbie and Ken. Mm-hmm. And you know, after a moment, you know, I realize, of course, that. Ken and Barbie are meant to be standing at the top of the stairs, talking down to Hal and uh, and and Rose who are at the bottom. But because it's such a tight shot, because the angle is so close that I can't see that it's a down shot, and because even though Barbie's hair is a little different, it's still mm-hmm. they're two blondes with medium length hair, and yeah. I am easily confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as to which was which. Yeah, I had a little, a couple of moments of confusion there too um, so the, on that page. I'm just so. going to call that out, not because these mm-hmm. aren't incredibly gifted uh, artists and because, uh, mm-hmm. and, and gifted editors, they were working on a deadline, but in an ideal world, I mm-hmm. kind of feel like we should have seen a little bit of Ken and Barbie enough to recognize them at the top of that staircase. Mm-hmm. And then um, maybe, you know, I love to see where people are in relationship to each other and on a comic yeah. book page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's got to be incredibly challenging to do um, because that is a page that is actually very, very packed. There's a lot of stuff happening on that page. It is mm-hmm. a packed page. And, you know, as mm-hmm. someone who, in addition to editing comics, has written comics, I have asked artists to do things where they have scratched their heads for weeks and then said, I've come up with a solution. It involves, you know, fewer panels, more panels, a different, Mm -hmm. an additional page. So I, I'm Mm -hmm. not 
meaning to second guess anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always a lot to love. I think that I'm really attuned this time to how Rose is defined by her body language. She's mm-hmm. always sprawled there. She is just boneless and sprawled and relaxed and sensual. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something unconsciously seductive about Rose. Oh, interesting. I think if you look at her body language, how often she's slouched, she's, mm-hmm. you know, lying in these very relaxed poses that are not, you know, come hither seductive poses, but there is something in her relaxation, in her mm-hmm. just body language that that yeah. is inviting. And I think that is not unintentional. Interesting. I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. You also mentioned that there is a cure poster. Yes. Okay. This wall. was the last thing <laughs> that I wanted to say. And I mm-hmm. went into a little bit of a deep dive with this. So I noticed that there's a, a panel in which there's a cure poster. I think Hal comes in as Dolly mm-hmm. and it's the poster to boys don't cry. So Neil has acknowledged in interviews that uh, Robert Smith, the lead singer of The Cure, and I think before that he was with Susie and the Banshees in some Mm -hmm. capacity. Forgive my ignorance, people. And and, and Neil himself in his 20s were some of the visual inspirations for The Sandman. Now, Mm -hmm. Robert Smith, for those of you who are new to this universe, uh, had this black, spiky, wild hair, pale skin, dark eye makeup, red lipstick, which Morpheus doesn't seem to to Mm -hmm. wear. And these black kind of, you know, I think there were some elements of Victorian-ishness about about the attire. Um, And I went into such a deep dive with this. I started to listen to The Cure. And then (laughs) I started to listen to, I think his name is Dan Beto, who does analyses of how songs are constructed and what made, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. various songs wonderful. And he goes into how the blend of guitar and synthesizer in minor chords add this hint of wistfulness. So, uh, yeah. Wow, I love it. That's very cool. Well, I'm glad you went down that little, uh, you know, rabbit hole. It's always it's fun how these things kind of shoot you out into these. Uh, so it's probably, you know, not a coincidence since, you know, um, Robert Smith is an inspiration kind of for the the look of Sandman. But here we've got it on the wall and we have Boys Don't Cry. Right. Yes. Um, when we've got we keep going back to Jed crying on the floor of this basement, you know, um, suffering that way. Um, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, that kind of led me into thinking about the late eighties and Mm -hmm. romanticism and the cynicism and the flavor of the era as I experienced it. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, once you've lived through a decade, you know it in its complexity and you know your corner of it. So just as the 1950s were not just, I love Lucy 1950s, there was a Bohemian Mm -hmm. Greenwich Village 1950s, there was Kerouac, there there were different Mm -hmm. facets to it. And I, I think that we can forget the 80s. I've, I've, we've now lived long enough that the 80s have become, as the 50s once were, simplified right. into mm-hmm. this kind of glitzy, yuppie, uh, commercial 
narrative. And Mm -hmm. since we've been talking about the flavor of Sandman and, and, you know, how it was amazing for its time, I thought that Mm -hmm. we should acknowledge that the 80s that the Sandman came out of wasn't exactly the 80s. If if all you know of the 80s is rewatching, you know, Dirty Dancing and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club, <laughs> right. you may, mm-hmm. you know, and Cheers, you may not realize that there was another side to the 80s. So there was mm-hmm. this, I guess, avant pop, you know, Kate Push, Bush, boys in makeup, artsy mm-hmm. 80s. It was a time in New York City, I don't know about London, but crime was mm-hmm. actually worse than it is now. So there was this juxtaposition, yeah. ju- I can't talk, juxtaposition. <laughs> I've not been drinking. It's just late. Um, <laughs> it, there, was, there, was, there was, you know, the contrast between um, the, the yuppie, you know, everyone wanted a high paying job, Wall Street, you know, concept mm-hmm. of the 80s and this grittier side there, you know, there were more visible drugs and overdoses and street life going on in New York City then. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is part of Sandman's aesthetic and part of the world it comes out of this grittiness, mm-hmm. this horror that we see, you know, the eighties were a rough time and they felt like a cynical time at the mm-hmm. same time, there was this hint of high romanticism. Yeah. And I was also thinking about how the forties were really in and people mm-hmm. looked back to the forties and this sort of noir, aesthetic, something dark, a little dangerous, a little cynical, but very stylish. And mm-hmm. and that, uh, I think that is all very much a part of the Sandman. It is very much of its, like, it does very much kind of get the feel of that time, you know, and that was a time too, when women were a little, you know, it was this huge move for independence and women were going to the workplace and that we were going through this transition from, you know, the sexual revolution into kind of the working revolution, you know, or what were the movies or working girl, it was baby boom. It was, you know, women with unbelievably large shoulder pads, just going out into the city and, and doing their thing, you know? Now Um, it's, yeah. I just want to say something about the fashions of, the 80s, because I think fashions mm-hmm. tell you something interesting about a decade. There's yeah. a way in which the fashions of the 80s were less sexualized than mm-hmm. the fashions of the 70s or the 90s. Yeah. They were less body conscious in that you had padding at the shoulders, you had layers of things, you had low slung belts, the body was armored. And it was oversized. A lot of these yeah. things were oversized. And what do you, I mean, you, you know, if you've ever had a cat, right? When a cat is puffing up to look tough, they, their hair comes out so that they look bigger, right? And everything in the 80s was made to make women look bigger in some way. And even you know? like the models, the supermodels of the yeah. 80s were these more muscular women. I don't know where we're going with all of this, but it's kind of interesting. It's just an, it's yeah. just an observation. Like, honestly, at this point, like we're just kind of throwing stuff at the wall. But I, I mean, I think it is kind of interesting because there is something ab- about that that I think speaks to power. Right. And women being empowered and there's and taking that power, you know, not waiting for somebody to give it to them, but taking it And the 80s were kind of very forceful in that way of seeing, you know, women can be just like men. And I mean, the thing, the problem with that 
like, you know, kind of angle on feminism is the idea that that whatever men are is something to aspire to, you know, <laughs> which I think that when you've got, you know, a lot there are there are things that are challenging for men and things that are challenging for women. And the idea that like, you know, that women, all the things that we object to that men do, <laughs> let's start doing them. And that's going to be our feminism. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think it's in in more recent years, I went back and I was uh, reading about Mike Nichols and Working Girl. And sorry, mm-hmm. spoiler people, but you should still yeah. watch Working Girl. It's 30 years old movie. It's, yeah, it's well, it's new to somebody, but exactly. <laughs> it's but it's a, a wonderful movie. But at the very mm-hmm. end, I think that Mike Nichols, the director, intended for there to be some subversion of the idea that yes, Melanie Griffith's character has gotten her success, but really she's stuck in an office. What kind of great success is this? Except Mm -hmm. in the reality of the movie, I always read it as a very happy ending. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, Yeah, and I think that because she got what she wanted, you know, she was going after something and she made it. And that's, yeah. She got the career and the man, which is, yeah. um, And I think that is going to lead us a little bit later into our discussion of females and power and protagonists. But first I wanted to say, okay, so if you're looking for a soundtrack to be, you know, rereading your Sandman too, (laughs) I was thinking, okay, so we've got the cure. There should be some, you know, vintage Kate Bush. There should mm-hmm. be some Tori Amos because Tori Amos will definitely be coming up. But is mm-hmm. there anything else that you would add to your Sandman reading playlist? Oh, my goodness. You know, I honestly I don't know, because when in the 80s, I listened to the terrible terrible music like I listened to nothing that was cool. Everything I listened to was like Duran Duran. I I, I, I kid you not. Huey Lewis in the news. I was a huge fan of Huey Lewis <laughs> I in the love news. It when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, like I didn't listen to any like the cool avant-garde, you know, British punk kind of stuff that was coming in, you know, during that time. Um, so unfortunately I can't bring anything uh, to it. Uh, I just, that's, that's cool. I just think that's but, fine. Yeah. You should listen to the cure and then Huey Lewis and the news. <laughs> no, hand to God. I was the biggest Huey Lewis and the news fan. And that was like the first actual live concert that I went to. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really nerdy. But anyway, so let's move on from Madonna, right? Um, Which is what I listened to in the 80s. (laughs) Um, All right. So let's talk a little bit about Sandman as mystery. So I was, you know, on my reread, I was thinking about how elements of mystery key into this. Um, I think that we are shown these images of Jed as an adolescent, as a prisoner, juxtaposed with uh, the Corinthians young male victims. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that the, you know, the inference, it's hard for me to know, because I read this for so, you know, so long ago, but that the inference would be that Jed too is a a prisoner of the Corinthians. And then Mm -hmm. we would get that revelation like, oh no, he's being held separately. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, well, he's being held by a human uh, as well. And he's also being held prisoner by Bruton Glob. So he's being held doubly. He's imprisoned everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And and, uh, we're gonna then, you know, so then we get our introduction to Bruton Glob. We've met the Corinthian and, 
And that leaves only Fiddler's Green being unaccounted for, except that I spoiled that last week because I'm a big <laughs> dummy doo-doo head. <laughs> oh, stop. It's completely fine. And it was worth spoiling. It's a neat concept. It's a neat thing to talk about. And this week we got to meet Gilbert. We got to see G.K. Chesterton. In the in the scribbles. Yes, but we don't know who he is yet, except that I That's true. Yeah, we I'm, don't know who he is. Yet. I am that I am what my mom used to be when she would say, You should definitely go see Driving Miss Daisy. And I'm like, no spoilers. I'm not gonna spoil it. I'm just gonna tell you one thing. And then she would spoil it. A spoil the whole thing. <laughs> Well, I am personally like a firm believer that a good story can't be spoiled. I do think that there's, a, you know, like a, a space for the big surprises and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's probably fine. It's a very, very minor spoiler, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, what's really funny is I read this from you and I was like, oh, my God, it had never occurred to me that Jed was a prisoner of the Corinthian. And I think it may be because the first, my first interaction with this story was actually through listening to the audiobook. I was mm. driving back and forth to Columbus, Ohio, getting my kids set up at college. And um, and so while I was driving, I was listening to Sandman and I was re-listening to the stuff that we'd already done because what I've been doing up until now is I've been saving the audiobook until after I've done the thing and we've, you know, done our episode and then I'll do it. You spoilered. I spoilered. I spoilered. Do you think, um, wait, if you hadn't heard the audible first, do you think you would have thought that Jed was being I might held have. by the Corinthian? I might have. When I was listening to the audiobook, that didn't even occur to me. Mm. But I I also I wasn't getting the visuals of boys being, you know, tied up and gagged in, in a bathroom and that kind of thing. So I wasn't really getting that kind of visual connection. Mm. Um, so that didn't even occur to me. But because I, I've listened ahead a little bit. So I've, I've actually, I know a little bit of the story that's coming, um, after this. Um, but yeah, but it's, it's kind of funny. Cause I don't know if I was just reading it, if I would have, hmm. if I would have uh, thought that, but it is kind of a, a night, a nice little, uh, you know, Oh, can we, aside. okay. So, um, if anyone is reading for the first time and you can give us a shout out on Twitter or mm -hmm. on the discord and let us know if that was a thought that occurred to you, I'm now desperately curious, really interested. I yeah. also want to know what other people want to add to their 80s soundtrack of Sandman listening. I love it. I love it. Yes, absolutely do. I wish that I could uh, offer something. Um, I will I will put in, you know, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the news. Um, <laughs> that, that could be the theme to this whole storyline. I don't know. It certainly could. It certainly could. Um, all right. So I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about, about the story and the way that the story is being told. We've had on a lot of these um, issues so far kind of contained narratives within an issue, um, you know, and then we and then we've got the bigger story that's kind of like moving. Um, the thing that was really interesting in Preludes and Nocturnes is that we did that with every issue being um, being from a different perspective and from a different angle and looking at that whole story kind of from from all of these different places in which, you know, Morpheus often was not the protagonist of whatever the issue was. We were telling those stories from different places. It was really, really interesting with different tones and, and kind of like playing around with a whole bunch of things. Um, and here, I think we're getting a little bit more consistent where we are. We've got Rose and we are following her through this narrative. And while we do kind of cut out to spend time with Morpheus, we cut out to spend a little time 
munching on eyeballs with the Krithian. We spend a little time in, uh, you know, in Jed's dreamland. Um, it is mostly Rose's story at this point. She really is like the main protagonist that we're following through. And one of the things that I noticed is that in moving in, we are laying a lot of track, you know, for what is going to come later. But it doesn't have this issue doesn't have a contained narrative in it. It doesn't really feel like we we launch a narrative and we we finish it for the the issue itself while we're still moving the needle on the big story that's going um, overhead. And the thing is that you don't have to like when you get into a serial like your 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 final narrative unit the big narrative, the big conflict that you're launching and walking through could be the whole series, like that whole, you know, this this volume, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we've got a story that starts at the beginning of this volume, ends at the end of this volume, and the issues that we have in between just move that story forward and don't have individual independent episodic arcs of their own. That said, I really like to have an episodic arc. You know, I like to have a story where I've got, where we're doing both of those things at once, but that's a lot to do. And there's already a lot of track being laid, you know, in this story. So, so for me, the issue felt like I got to the end and it was like, and I'm going to kick some ass, you know, from dream. And they were like, wait, to be continued, you know, here we are in this little cliffhanger, you know, I enjoyed it. You know, there are definitely things I liked about it. I freaking love all of dreams, broody, kind of what the fuck is going on, sending the raven out to watch everything, looking for this kid. I loved all of that stuff. I thought that that was great. Um, but uh, yeah, I felt a little bit, um, you know, like again, I struggle with horror. I especially struggle with horror in which a kid is getting his face eaten by a rat. Um, like all of that stuff is really, really difficult for me. So part of my response to it, like I'm not sure if it's my personal personal taste things that definitely bother me in a narrative that I have real difficulty dealing with children in danger, children being killed, all of that kind of stuff always, always bothers me. Um, but, uh, but overall, like I just kind of felt like, Oh wait, you know, I have to stop because this is what we're doing for the episode tonight on the podcast, but I wanted the rest of that story, you know? Yeah. I, I know what you mean in that this is not a chapter in which we get those exquisite moments of liftoff mm-hmm. and, you know, where it's it's moments of poetry and you sort of rise above the situation. But I think because I have read ahead, because I know the shape of the whole thing, mm-hmm. I feel content with with the pacing of this and, you know, I think, oh, you know, yes, here we're meeting Gilbert. Um, Here's our introduction, introduction to Barbie and Ken. And, Mm -hmm. you know, above all for me, this is where we meet Matthew the Raven. Oh, Matthew the Raven. Who's so cool. Boss. I like the way he calls him boss. There's, (laughs) there's a lot of lore about Matthew the Raven. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of it is accurate. The rumor that I named my son after him is incorrect. <laughs> it's incorrect. It's <laughs> the only name my husband and I could agree on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love Matthew the Raven. And I, um, you know, I, I, he will figure more in the mythology of the dreaming. His character mm-hmm. emerges more, the relationship that he and Morpheus have. Uh, so all of that's very satisfying to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the horror here, um, because this is like, you know, it's it's horror, but it's very bodily. It's very body horror, visceral horror. 
when he's on the phone and we're seen from his perspective as he snacks on one eyeball, snacks on another eyeball. <laughs> it's so awful. And then those boys, he says goodbye. They're tied up in the in the bathroom. Are they alive? Are they alive and he's just taken their eyes out and eaten them? I mean, oh my God, you know? It's Ugh. it's it's very hard. I mean, this is the realm of of like true crime horror. Yeah. Horror has different flavors and, and the mm-hmm. series at times goes more into dark fantasy, at times more into psychological horror. This is this is very true crime. And mm-hmm. um and I agree, it is not naturally the flavor that I go to these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it it has some wonderful questions that we can, you know, in the previous issue, we learned that there are the night kind and the dream folk and, mm-hmm. um, and, and that dream deliberately creates nightmares, creates yes, powerful which is nightmares. So interesting. One of his nightmares is out there doing terrible things. I mean, he doesn't know specifically what the Corinthian is doing at this point. But then when Matthew comes to see him, he's like, yeah, I was just making another nightmare. And, 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 you know, and and I, I love that he's got all these rough draft nightmares, but I think it, it raises the question, you know, what does Morpheus need to create nightmares for? Why does humanity Mm -hmm. need a nightmare or nightmares? Right. And that has a cognate in the real world. Am I using cognate right? I think so. I don't know. Analog? (laughs) It's a thing in the real world, which is why do we find horror appealing? And I I just Mm -hmm. ordered a book recently. Um, It was uh, Dreadful Pleasures and Anatomy of Modern Horror. It was written in 1985. Mm -hmm. So I guess that modern is now vintage. Yeah, right. Um, And the writer who's got a really perfect horror writer name of James R. Twitchell. That is so beyond perfect. I don't believe it's real. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he was like, I, my last name is Twitchell. I better write horror. Exactly. Right. I know someone whose last name is Piper, who's a plumber. So I think there's something. To it happens. It there's like a nominative determinism, I guess, you know. <laughs> oh, that is, by the way, along with your cookie monster rant, that is like one of the coolest <laughs> things you've ever said. What do you say? A Sisyphean hellscape because cookie monster can't eat the cookies. Yes. Yes, it is a Sisyphean hellscape where he's constantly trying to eat the cookies, but he cannot eat the cookies. For anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, go to my Twitter feed. I put up a clip from a uh, from a, a podcast that I had done a couple of years ago for Angel, the series, which is part of the Buffyverse, um, in which I talked about how much I really, really super hate Muppets. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, there's a lot there. There's a big bird thing. I'm just going to say the big bird reason is really the big reason why I hate the Muppets. Like that just was just cruelty. But anyway, yes. Okay. So we have some nominative determinism with Twitchell. (laughs) Anyway, so he talks about the appeal of horror and I don't know if I agree with this. I haven't, I haven't fully digested this. I was actually shoveling down my dinner. I was like, let me read something about a horror so I can bring it to the podcast. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. He he basically said horror kind of boils down to three different classic appeals. And I'm putting this mm-hmm. into my words. So if they suck, it's my fault. Um, first of all, it's, you know, getting the thrill of experiencing something dangerous without being hurt or mm-hmm. being killed. It's, you know, letting off the pressure gauge of your desire to do something transgressive. Mm-hmm. And last, 
And in his opinion, kind of not least, but most, it is a way of adolescence exploring the dangerous side of sexuality so they can sort of mm -hmm. learn the do's and don'ts and not to go into the transgressive side of sexuality. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. His argument is that horror's chief appeal is to, you know, 12 to 18 year olds. Well, I mean, that's interesting because if you think about like the classic history of fairy tales, right, you know, we have Disney-fied them, right? Um, but originally they were really, really dark and they were for children. It was to keep kids safe. We would be afraid of the dark because there are monsters there. You know, there's a wolf that's going to eat you. And of course, when you talk about Little Red Riding Hood, you get to all of the sexual analogies that are involved in that, you know. Um, but it's, it's very interesting how we went from fairy tales as cautionary tales, uh, and now horror is one of those things that appeals maybe to that part of us, mm. um, that kind of delineates what is in the dark. I mean, okay, first of all, there are pleasures to horror. There are people who love horror. It is a, a genre that has a huge amount of appeal. And I am never going to say that there's anything wrong with horror as a genre. When I talk about horror, I'm saying what it does to me. Like it gives me anxiety and it, it keeps me up. I am extremely affected by horror. So I go way past the pleasure point on the needle and it just disturbs me, you know? So for me, I don't find pleasure and horror. That doesn't mean there are not legit pleasures to be found in it and real stories, good narrative stuff being done there. But now, you know, when I was starting out my pandemic, uh, Sisyphean hellscape, yes. I, <laughs> which had no Muppets in it, uh, I found myself drawn back to horror in a way that I hadn't been in years. And for mm -hmm. me, I realized that along with romance, it is the most visceral of the genre. Yes. So, mm -hmm. you know, you read romance to experience the erotic and emotional highs of being in love and some of the lows, mm -hmm. and you go into horror to have that same visceral response of fear and challenge and perhaps being able to conquer it. But you know, just as in romance, there are these many different subgenres of romance and not everyone is for, you know, I, it, you may love a dark mafia romance and, uh, and another person may love a, mm -hmm. an inspirational romance and, you know, and, and never the twain shall meet. Although an mm -hmm. inspirational dark mafia romance would be really interesting, but it would be really interesting. <laughs> I love the fusion of genres there. We need more fusion, <laughs> but you know. So for me, I do love horror. I have specific tastes. I really like the kind of horror where nature takes over and punishes those who have transgressed. I like interesting. You know, I like it when frogs take over and kill Ray Milland and the frogs, a great mm -hmm. July 4th horror film. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, in fact, I, I think I just generally like frog horror, but that's <laughs> another story. So I, 
I don't think this is in my, it, this is how I feel. Like if, if a sports romance is wonderfully done, Ted Lasso, I, oh, yeah. now I find myself wanting to read sports romance, but I don't, it's not usually my first thing. I'm not usually like Susan Elizabeth Phillips. That's all I'm going to say. I'm, I'm yeah. listening to her latest book right now. And yes. I've loved Deidre mm-hmm. Martin. I'm going to check out yeah. Farrah Roshan. But mm-hmm. in general, like I am the person who doesn't understand sports. I lived in fear. You want to talk about horror? I lived in fear that anytime someone threw a softball, that it was going to ruin what was left of my eyesight. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, what? I think it's really funny, though, how um, like how what you are are interested in and the stories that speak to you speak to your particular like um you know psychology i find that fascinating you know um but the thing is is that like stories and fiction there's such incredible power in fiction and i open up my classes by sitting my students down and being like hey Fiction is the most powerful force on earth, you know, and it really is. I mean, if you think that every war that's ever been fought hasn't been fought on a story of who is the hero and who is the villain, mm-hmm. then you're absolutely mistaken. Like we build narratives around everything and narratives. I mean, we are as humans meaning making machines and we do that through narrative. Um, so when you're looking at horror and what it does, um, and, and where the appeal is for it. I remember when I was a kid, I really liked it. Like I would crave like a Friday the 13th movie or something like that. You know, um, it was when I got older that I, I couldn't deal with that anymore. Absolutely. You know? And I had, mm-hmm. so this is, this is bizarre, but recently I, uh, wasps built a nest in my grill. And so I knew <laughs> I had to kill them because I, I waited and I waited that wasps nest was getting bigger and bigger finally one night I got the foam and I quickly sprayed the nest and I I came the next morning and you know there are all the dead wasps and and some you know larvae sacks and suddenly I thought I am the monster of the wasps horror film and I just imagine them yelling not the larvae not the larvae But it's those experiences, these fictional experiences. I mean, was it George R. R. Martin? I think it was in Dance of Dragons. Uh, He had a character who said, um, the man who reads lives a thousand lives and the man who doesn't lives but one, right? Um, That that when you live through all of these experiences, and I mean, you know, studies have been done showing that people who read fiction, who live within the experience of other people have greater empathy. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes from that. Um, but, but the thing about horror, the value of it and the pleasures of it, and if there is a pleasure, I mean, I I feel like when I think about what it is that the the pleasure of horror is, is that there's always kind of this fear of what's in the dark, right? And what you imagine is always so much worse than what's actually there, you know? So if you can imagine what the darkness holds, somehow, I think that might give you a sense or some people and people who love horror tell me. Does it give you a sense of I know what's in the dark now and I know that I can deal with it because I just walked through this story in which we, you know, we beat it, you know? I I think that is it. So two things about what you just said. I just spoke with John English, who's the head of um, uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm going to be, oh God, now I'm <laughs> 
see out in the name. It's it's Visual Arts Passage. It's an art school. Mm-hmm. And he told me that he'd been speaking with uh, George Pratt, who had mm-hmm. said that George Pratt is a wonderful comic book artist. And, mm-hmm. and he'd said, yes, you know, whatever the reader imagines in the darkness is, is more terrifying. Just, just what you yeah. said, but from the visual perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that what horror does for some of us is that it gives shape and form and then lets us set aside these inchoate Mm -hmm. feelings Mm -hmm. that we're having. So in the pandemic, because I was dealing, um, my mom wasn't doing well. And I felt Mm -hmm. uh, just, I felt like everything was teetering on, Mm -hmm. you know, into from the reality I had known into some new reality and horror stories articulated and kind of calmed the chaos that I was feeling. Mm-hmm. I, well, I love that. And I think it does. Like, I, I, it comes, it brings to mind this episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And for those of you who are not familiar, I've got a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. I always will always bring everything back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Get out your bingo cards now. Um, you know, and when I say Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you win. Um, but there was this one episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where there was a monster that was not corporeal, that when Buffy, Buffy was a physical hero and when she swung at it, it wasn't there. And in order for them to fight it, she needed to make it corporeal. And when she did, she was able to, you know, to beat it. Um, and I think that maybe there's something in that. There's something in giving us something that we can know, that we can understand, that we can define the edges of something so that what is in the dark we have an inventory of it you know and it gives us a sense of maybe some control over it I find that really really interesting and that might be why Mm -hmm. Morpheus is out making nightmares for us that may be why he does it that does make sense God, that's so it's so interesting. The world building in this thing is just amazing. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit is, you know, to bring it back to our protagonist, who is who's, you know, very light, right? She's blonde. She's got this very light kind of thing about her, you know. Um, and uh, and so I find that interesting, um, you know, in a in a darker story. But um, but I like that Rose has a clear goal as a protagonist, right? And she is in pursuit of that. Um, I don't particularly care for the way that the events kind of unfolded in this issue. Um, I don't like the fact that she's attacked in an alley by men who clearly intend to rape her. And then she's rescued by Gilbert. She becomes the thing that the men you know, the thing the men decide her fate, you know, um, and this is a cultural thing that we do a lot. Um, so it's easy to do it and and not really think about it. But sexual assault, like even sexual assault that is threatened but not realized is a traumatizing experience. And to put a character in that position just so we can damsel her and have her rescued by a man um, is is somewhat counterproductive, I think, and and unnecessary. Um, And then Gilbert uses the attack as a reason why he must go with her to Georgia because she's clearly not safe without a big, strong man to protect her. And she protests and says, no, I don't want you to come with me. And then in the next panel, there he is. He's going with her anyway. And it's presented as kind of a cute thing, you know. Um, I think damseling the character is a bad move um, because she is our protagonist and it just makes her feel like weak um and then having her bulldozed 
you know, by the the quote unquote capital B, capital H, big hero, you know, later, it just makes her look kind of weak and passive. And that's not what I want in a protagonist. Um, I will say, though, however, that when he comes into the alley in the hat, he's got the cloak, he's got the cane, like it's awesome. You know, it's just that I think that for our protagonist, damseling the protagonist like that is, I think, a, a um, counterproductive mood move. I I understand, although it's also lovely to see this older character. I mean, I don't think yeah. we see a lot of older characters kicking ass. Um, yeah, I mm-hmm. I you know we had a hint of I think we already saw a little bit of Mad Hetty with John Constantine. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes. she's 147. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm don't know how how old Gilbert's supposed to be but he's he's not he's not young um he is not young yeah but I I think you know this is an issue I I wonder about because um yes you've got this baggage with this you know our our own gender baggage that we've got this um help you know helpless female in in the alley but you know we also see a lot of helpless male victims there is a lot of desire some of it very unhealthy and unsavory and a lot of despair that is just phyllo pastried into all this story. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. And I think that having a helpless male character who is not our protagonist and also that kind of goes against what we usually see where the male is active you know, and the woman is passive. Here we're kind of, we're making men, some of, some men are also victims, you know, um, but, but the fact that our protagonist is damseled like that, um, I think that that's where that becomes a problem. And it's because she's a, a woman. I don't know that we would have seen that happen if Rose were a man. Well, I don't know because we've got, you know, we've got Jed, and mm-hmm. he's even more helpless. We've got the Corinthians young male victims, and they're even more helpless and being preyed upon. And I yeah, think but they're not our protagonists. They're not our protagonists. That's the problem. But the, yeah. the mm-hmm. issue is here that we've got there's a lot of victimization in this mm-hmm. issue. It it just there yeah. really is. And um, and we also know because of the nature of this story that mm-hmm. we've got supernatural antagonists yes. working against you know these these mortals and so mm-hmm. you know yes there's that element of of um rose being helpless and gilbert being male but also our awareness well i don't know i don't know if i would have realized in the beginning i'm trying to remember back <laughs> when i didn't know that he was fiddler's oh. green Right. Yes, exactly. And knowing, you know, knowing what he is and having that greater context for for who and what he is, you know, um, I just I just I think that like it, it's just one of those things that kind of doesn't sit that well, especially because the guys attacking her in the alley are completely random. If they were part of this magical group, if it was part of this same line of antagonism Ooh. coming from the Corinthian, if it was a magical thing, I think I probably it probably wouldn't bother me as much, especially because if it was a magical thing coming after her because she's the vortex. And then we had the magical Gilbert also coming in to protect her because he is magical and he can. That I think would have been different for me. I think I would have read that differently. But because this is a very mundane threat, 
you know, and it's this very mundane, it's always sexual violence, you know, it's like, just play a new tune, guys, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't know that it just it didn't sit sit right with me. Um, but let's go back to Jed a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, from verbal gerbils, which by the way, really cute idea, wakes up with rats eating the kid's face. Um, it's so horrifying. I think like I'm trying what happens to the Corinthians victims is terrible and visceral. It is this very like, you know, clear body horror. What is happening to Jed that he is captive? He is always dreaming. He is almost always asleep, except when he has to get up to urinate in the corner, which is, I mean, not even it's, it's heartbreaking. And to combine that kind of heartbreak, you know, for this poor kid with the, you know, the physical, visceral body horror that's going on here, too. I mean, this poor freaking kid, this is terrible. Um, but it's, you know, it's incredibly affecting. And, you know, it's good. I'm like, you know, I hate seeing kids suffer. That's always a trigger point for me. But I mean, like, what they're doing is incredibly powerful. You know, I wonder, well, Neil was, Neil became a father at a a relatively young age, Mm -hmm. but I wonder if it would have been harder for him to write some of this stuff as he got older. I think all of us become more sensitized. I think there is a toughness to being young and Neil was under 30 when he was writing this. Um, It's Mm -hmm. hard to you know, bear in mind just how young he was. And you, I I think there's a fearlessness, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I remember the moment where horror became more horror to me because I'd had kids and I felt vulnerable. Um, I think there is a lot of sexualized victimization in, mm-hmm. in the story. I said that, and I, yeah. and I think it, it, it is an uncomfortable space in the same way that the John D diner episodes mm-hmm. are, yes. are uncomfortable, so mm-hmm. um, on a much lighter note. However, I know that the gerbils are supposed to be nice and the rats evil. As you know, I've had the opposite experience. I've known some very nice rats <laughs> and I had a gerbil who had a stroke and just was always attacking me. Uh, his, oh, no. his name was Nibbles, but we called him <laughs> Gerbils after Gobbles. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not a big rodent person, I think, across the board. Um, you know, there's, there's always dead. Like, I've just had to deal. Like, every time you get a hamster, it always just dies. You know, like, I just, it's just dead rodents everywhere. And it's always kind of, kind of gross. So I'm, I'm just basically kind of. Did a, I tell a, you a about the person. raspberry tart? What's that? Oh, so I I had a raspberry tart. I had a friend over and we hadn't eaten this raspberry tart just a week or so ago. Yeah. And it was a beautiful raspberry tart. But the next morning we were going to eat it for breakfast and it looked kind of strange. Oh, no. And, you know, we we're both like, does it look like deflated? Were, were there more berries <laughs> on it? But it wasn't. And we just said, you know, something in our gut said, don't eat the tart. Yes. And then I was looking mm-hmm. through my phone and I'd taken a picture of it the night before. And mm-hmm. I realized, oh, there's only one way overnight a tart goes from that to this. And that is, I have a verbal gerbil somewhere in my oh, house. Oh, no. But yeah, mm. it was, um, and it was, I think there is something about rodents 
that mm-hmm. make you feel unsafe. They are yeah. dirty. They live in your walls. They, um, they're, they're mm-hmm. going to, you know, contaminate things. And so mm-hmm. there's, there's all of that unsavoriness. And also yeah. as a public service announcement, if you look at a tart that you saw just the night before, something in your gut says it's not right, <laughs> throw that sucker out. Don't, don't just eat it. Just on the safe side, yeah. just to be on the safe side. <laughs> All right. So back to Sandman. Do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about before we hit to Lucian's library? Uh, no, no, no. I've been dry, dry well. I think well. we're good. <laughs> I think we've wrung all this out. All right. So awesome. Lucian's library, everybody. We're in this section now. Just to let you know there may be spoilers here. So not today. You know, make your own decisions. <laughs> not today. Not today. Okay. I haven't looked at your notes yet because I always love this part, this behind the scenes kind of stuff. It's so awesome. I, I do not have a lot of behind the scenes for this mm-hmm. episode, but I was noticing as Rose was typing out her letter. Uh, oh my God. Right? Typewriter, writers? And there's also a boom box. And I realized I just wanted to say that writing was different on typewriters. Mm-hmm. And for those mm-hmm. of you too young to know, <laughs> when you were writing something on a typewriter, you could separate out the writing and the editing and the researching because right. it was not your typewriter did not look things up. And <laughs> I, when I applied to Columbia's graduate program, I, mm-hmm. that was ooh, 1990. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I took out my manuscripts and I took a scissors and I cut mm-hmm. them and I pasted them with tape. And then I had to retype everything. Uh-huh. So there were, there were aspects of that, which was harder and aspects mm-hmm. which were easier. So I, I was just thinking, I, I don't know, maybe we should all have like a typewriter challenge where we all, if That's anyone so has a typewriter anymore. I have two, I have two vintage, like serious, like turn of the century typewriters or whenever typewriters were around 1920, something like that. Like I have two of these uh, in my office right now, um, which still kind of work. But I remember like when I was uh, learning, I was uh, the IBM Selectric that like, you know, kind of electronic typewriter of the the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and yeah, it is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that about how back in in the day when you were working on a typewriter, all of those functions were distinct, you know? Um, And also like edits, I remember edits, like now I will just edit the hell out of whatever it is I'm working on. But when an edit meant that you had to go and retype that whole page again and like redo everything from that point, you made sure that you did it, you know, like that it was worth it. It's like, is this edit worth it? You know, no. And then you, you know, at least I wouldn't. Um, but yeah, it is it is interesting. Also, that that very extremely tactile experience. I like my little keyboards now that are very chiclet and it's just, you know, your your fingers fly across the screen. But my boyfriend has uh, one of those old, oh, not old, but like based on that kind of like old selectric, like those mechanical, you know, he likes the big, you know, where he's punching the keys like he's going to kill them, you know. And every time I try to type on that thing, I'm like, oh, my God, it's exhausting, you know. Um, but it is funny how there is such an incredibly tactile experience to writing on a typewriter, to creating a physical page as opposed to a digital page, um, and how that affects the way that you write. I know some people still write in longhand, you know, and then translate it all in, and that there are different ways 
to approach whatever it is that you're writing and how that might change the way that you write it, the way that you tell a story. The way you compose. I'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. that Neil was composing on computer or word processor. He Mm -hmm. put his scripts on CompuServe, uh, certainly from the time I started working. Mm -hmm. But now I want to ask him if he started at some point with typewriter. He must have. I mean, we all did. Interesting. But I do think Mm -hmm. all of these were on on computer, but it it would Mm -hmm. not have been a typical thing for someone to have a computer. So that's, that's a little mm-hmm. vintagey thing, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I may have mentioned this before, but we were all like, why is Neil publishing his scripts? It's going to ruin all the, you know, it's just, <laughs> I don't know what we thought, but it was, um, yeah. Yeah. Babble. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting to, you know, uh, to put some stuff out there and like have people respond to it in the moment. And especially at that point, that must have been because that was an experience that was available to writers before that. It was, you know, you couldn't get that kind of feedback. No, no, you couldn't. So another Mm -hmm. thing I thought I would just bring up is Ravens. Mm -hmm. So I love Mm -hmm. Matthew the Raven. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that Neil had read and loved as I do, uh, Peter S. Beagle's A Fine and Private Place. So Mm -hmm. I don't think as many people read it. It is the story of an old man who lives in a graveyard and there is a raven who brings him, I think at the very beginning, he's bringing him bologna. And, Mm -hmm. um, and he's this wisecracking kind of, you know, um, down to earth Brooklynish Raven. And I think he's got some kinship with Matthew. They are distinct characters. I don't mean mm-hmm. to say that one is derivative, but uh, I wanted to just, can I, can I give a little quote from the yeah. Peter S. Beagle since I, I don't think a Absolutely. lot of people know it anymore. Um, so this is from the Raven. The, the short quote is Ravens bring things to people. We're like that. It's our nature. We don't like it. And, and then maybe we can post the longer quote on the show notes so that people, sure. if they want to get a little bit more about uh, Peter S. Beagle's, it's, it's a lovely book, by the mm-hmm. way, it's about two ghosts who fall mm-hmm. in love and an Aww. old man who lives in the graveyard and the raven. And it's, it's just so worth reading. Oh, it sounds really, really cool. I love that. Um, all right. So uh, I have a piece for Lucianne's library, which usually doesn't happen. But every now and again, I will pick something up. Um, Hector and Lita, right? As mm-hmm. soon as I saw them, I was like, Joshua Unruh has had me trained about where to find things and where to pick up stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, Hector Hall and Lita Trevor, I did a little research, were characters from DC in the 80s. Um, Hector was originally, I guess, the Silver Scarab. And from what I understand, and I, I'm getting this all wrong and butchering it terribly. And Joshua, who listens to this, is probably screaming at, you know, the um, the MP3 player or whatever, the MP3 player, like that's a thing anymore it's not <laughs> why i thought that uh, yelling at whatever it is he's listening to me on um but anyway so uh, so uh, from what i understand although i understand very little hector died while possessed by the silver scarab who was bad but because lita was pregnant with his child whose soul had hector's goodness the silver scarab wasn't able to get full control so at the last minute he was able to to win even though he gave his life so when we come into hector and lita here caught in the dream world um, Hector is has taken on this identity of the Sandman as a hero. And so as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, is 
this the Silver Age Sandman? And so, of course, I called Joshua Unruh and he explained everything to me in incredible detail. And I didn't understand any of it because trying to follow all of this stuff. I was like, and then he said something like, no, he's more of a Bronze Age Sandman. Um, and my understanding is that unlike Wesley Dodd, he didn't identify as a Sandman until Brute and Glob got a hold of him for this story. Um, it's so incredibly fascinating. I cannot wrap my mind. The storytelling, the world of DC and Marvel are both like this. At a certain point, I don't even know what the hell's going on. <laughs> it's true. And Lita is the daughter of Golden Age Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. Aha. Yes. And mm-hmm. so it's she she is a character who will we'll find out obviously more mm-hmm. about her in our next episode. And yes. And she will factor, she is, um, how can I, how can I say cryptic oracle things? Mm-hmm. Don't you forget about her. <laughs> she'll, she'll come back in interesting ways. That is going to be a lot of fun to see. All right. So Elisa, what is your favorite page in moving in? Okay. Um, well, I kind of love that last page where Morpheus is kind of duded up in all his Hunger Games, yep. man on fire regalia. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. That's the one that I picked too. I absolutely love that page where he's just like, oh, I'm going to fuck some shit up now. <laughs> I cannot believe he's so mad and offended. They took my this is my world. They did this, you know, um, they've, 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 um, what did he say? My law, this is my law and they violated it. Um, so yeah, when, when dream at the end, and this is the moment too, where I was like to be continued, what? You know, (laughs) like this is such a huge moment and it's, you know, it's awesome. I love all of the dream stuff in here. Well, dream is trying to figure out what's going on. He's sending Matthew to do the spying for him and he finds Jed, all of this stuff. I just think it's so, so cool. And I absolutely love it. Um, all right. So what's your favorite part? I, you know, love Matthew, the Raven. Mm -hmm. I, I think that because Morpheus is such a stiff, dignified character having this loosey-goosey sidekick who's like yeah boss yeah. you know is, and and Matthew's got a conscience he doesn't like being yeah. all creepy stalker to Rose uh-huh. um there is uh you know should I say the theory about who Matthew is or should I let people there's a theory about who Matthew mm-hmm. is and in order to figure it out, you should go back and read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run that's been, I, it was collected as Love and Death. It's the whole, it's, if you think this has horror, you know, the Love and Death horror, it, it deserves its own podcast. It's it's Swamp Thing and it's, it's romantic and deeply disturbing. But anyway... Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the connection with Matthew, Ooh, the Raven. Interesting. I can't wait to find out more. Um, for me, again, like I, I basically have already given it away. It's dream playing detective. My favorite part, trying to find, um, you know, trying to find out what's going on and like figuring everything out and then getting so pissed when he realizes what Brute and Glob have done. Although with names like Brute and Glob, I mean, what were you expecting them to do? <laughs> And and before we started our podcast, my dog is still intact, and I've decided that his accoutrements should be named Fruit and Glob. <laughs> I can't think of possibly a better note to you end know, a podcast on than that. I just want to say that I think men like typically name yeah. 
but not they don't name the Bruton Glob. I don't know they why. They don't name the Bruton Glob. And, no, they don't. And I think that we should start this trend. I think we absolutely should. So everybody listening, hop to it. All right, if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers. I know America like the back of my hand. I'm part of the American dream. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or use the Sandman's whistle to stop Dr. Lobster's evil scheme. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, thank you for helping me save the world from the toad dancers of Pluto. We will be back next time with Sandman 12 playing house. Until then, I am angry, Lucienne, and it's my move.